This is the legendary Tom DeFalco, and you are listening to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast of all time. And unfortunately, I was not invited to be part of this podcast. I can't believe it. A living legend like me. And they didn't even invite me. Welcome to episode 8 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast. The podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016, which is a scant two months away. So this week, as mentioned last week, we are doing another slight reinterpretation of the comics that made the list, believing that perhaps the votes for Marvel's 1 were referring to the original Marvel's miniseries as opposed to Marvel's Eye of the Camera rather than the first issue of Marvel's. So, John M. Wilson is back to discuss the full four-issue Marvel's miniseries. Hooray! Because, oh my god, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Oh yes, we have got the words by Kurt Busiek, who is just a king of continuity, which is perfect for this project. And a great, great scripter. Oh yeah. And the interiors are painted by Alex Ross. Mmm. And this is like when Alex Ross was still, you know kind of new to the industry and still trying to make a name for himself. I think it's one of those things where you have something that's so amazing that it blows you away and it becomes a part of reality until after a while you can get a little bit jaded. I know that the people out there who don't like Alex Ross are kind of jaded about his artwork, but this is early Alex Ross. This is, this is what made him a name and this is amazing, beautiful stuff. No shortcuts are taken in these issues. Every page is amazing. Oh, yeah, that is. We've got letters by John Gauchel, just to continue with the credits here, edited by Mark McLaurin, under editor-in-chief, legendary Tom DeFalco. Cover dates range from January to April 1994, and release dates range from November 9th, 1993 to March 22nd, 1994. And as you could probably tell by the episode number, it came in at number eight in the countdown. Now, I just happen to notice you leaving off the zero issue from a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really include the zero issue because it was it was the the later promotional add-on. I believe it was maybe one of the Wizard promotional comics. So here we're just focusing on the original four issues as they were originally published. Okay, well, yeah, let's 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 dig in. What do you want to What do you want to talk about first? We should probably talk about the concept of the series because that you know is a big piece of why Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross are such a great team on it. This is a street level perspective of the Marvel Comics. From its birth, with Marvel Comics Presents number one, as they retell the unveiling of the original Jim Hammond Human Torch from the perspective of the newspaper photographer who was at the scene. And we continue in the perspective of that photographer as he chronicles the history of Marvel Comics right up to and including the death of Gwen Stacy. So it's taking... The idea that Marvel always pushes to have relatable heroes and really setting it aside and taking the idea of what about people who live in this universe? How would they react to the Marvel heroes? And so you get a lot of, a lot of stories from the Marvel universe history that we're just, we're just hitting a tangent on, you know? As in we're like a tangent on a circle where we're intersecting at one point and shooting back off again because their stories are not Jim Sheldon's story. His story is to get back, or Phil Sheldon, sorry. His story is to just, you know, live his life as a photographer and try to make a name for himself and wrestling with the idea of super. There's a lot of introspection in this story uh, as he wrestles with the idea of what the heroes mean to the world and to him and to life, the universe and everything. Oh, yeah. Particularly in issues two through four. I mean, issue one kind of stands alone because that's the one that addresses the golden age. Right. And then there's a gap. Yeah. And issue two starts just ever so slightly after the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and those guys came out there. So it's definitely very early Silver Age. If you're a continuity buff, you can look at virtually every appearance and every event in here, and match it with the issue it came from. So it's not hard to to say, oh yeah, they're revisiting Avengers number four, or Fantastic Four number 48, or 
you know, whatever you want to pull out this FF annual, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. The, 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 the masters of evil fight from Avengers number six, uh, is in here. People get stuck on the streets for a panel before, before the narrative goes in a different direction. I believe there was published a list of all the comics referenced in this story. I think in one of the editions of Marvel's, maybe it was a hardcover edition that I had. I think there was a supplementary page that had every single issue referenced in the story. It's, a, it's, it's an extensive list, obviously. Yeah, because that's what happened when Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross go nuts. <laughs> and Alex Ross, you know, he's there. He has the pictures. He has the eye for photorealistic painting, for making the heroes look like they're actually people in fantastic costumes doing amazing things and yet still people. And then Kurt Busiek has an idea for the continuity and for the, for the real nitty gritty of story and mythos and universe that has been built over the last, at this point, 30 years. Well, more than that, if you count the golden age, but 30 years for the main part of the story. And they go together like, like two things that go really well together. Yeah. This is chocolate and peanut butter. This is, you know, peanut butter and jelly or can you tell I'm craving peanut butter? <laughs> anyway. I have a tube of Thin Mints in the other room that I think is going to be good for some peanut butter Dunkin' later. Um, but you're in Canada. You don't have Girl Scout cookies. We do. Have you? Yep. I've got a crate of them in the upstairs pantry. Buy a, a 12-month supply for one of my students every November. Okay. All right. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to get into the actual story beats of this, of this comic? Yeah, we should, by and large. I mean, we don't have to go into great detail because a lot of this is... As you said, it's just how he is reacting. But there's so much to what's good stuff in here. And I love the opening issue because whenever I read this, and this kind of, you know, gets into the how he could encounter the story bit. Um, whenever I read this, I had never before seen a story that involved the original Human Torch. I'm not even sure if I even had the vaguest conception that there was an original Human Torch until this comic told me that. I may have known already because I'm not entirely sure when I saw the um, Marvel Comics hardcover on the upper shelf of a random comic shop in Austin, Texas that had Marvel Comics 1 through 4, maybe, published together in it. That was when I was like, oh my gosh, the oldest Marvel Comics ever. So I'm not sure if that, was, if that event was before or after reading this comic, but that would have been another possible early Human Torch for me. It looks like a man on fire. The art looks like there's a man on fire. And there's the moment whenever Sheldon's like, and he looked at me. And it was a human being in there. And everyone else was re reacting with fury and fear. And he, Sheldon feels some of that too. But at the same time, he's like, but that's a guy. And the way Kurt Busiek scripts it and the way Alex Ross paints it, it just is really mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. And the whole thing is, it, it's not just his reaction. Phil's got his own story going on. But we see the introduction of Captain America and how what people know about him is essentially the U.S. military propaganda releases. We see the first couple appearances of the Submariner, both as friend and foe. If you watch closely, we'll see that Alex Ross has painted Popeye into this. Yeah, there are a lot of really fun cameos. Uh, I get the, uh, the wedding announcement of Reed and Sue. I think the Beagles show up in there. There's lots of fun people in this. Yeah, even in this first issue, you know, Phil has kind of distanced himself from his fiance because, you know, with these marvels going around, he doesn't know how to deal with it. He doesn't know if that's the kind of environment where he wants to raise a family and just wants to let that pass first. And to sort of make him jealous, she makes sure that he's he sees her on a date with her friend, mailman Willie Lumpkin. Yes, Willie Lumpkin. That was that was fun. I I I knew who he was at the time because he had appeared in in Spider Man comics around this time as well as a very brief love interest for Aunt May. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. In part of this, you know, when Phil realizes, yeah, these Marvels are here to stay, so might as well move on, you know, he ends up losing an eye in one of the attacks. From the uh, Submariner and Human Torch, the, uh, the Marvel Mystery Comics 8 and 9 fight. Yeah. He's there, he's high up, he's seeing everything, but then a piece of rubble hits him in the face, and uh, he loses an eye. And the issue ends with, with a great and amazing shot of not just the invaders, but like a whole panoply of early Timely Comics characters. The Vision's there, the Destroyer's there, lots of people are there. 
Yeah, the original Black Widow. Right. Who is not a reprogrammed Russian spy by any stretch of the imagination. No, clairvoyant, <laughs> actually. Not to be confused with the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. character from its first season. And I don't even know who all these characters are, actually. There's one guy who looks like the Hour Man, but he's the Black Marvel, maybe? I mentioned the Destroyer. There's a guy in a blue hood whose name escapes me. The Blazing Skull is here. Yep, the original Vision. The interdimensional alien is here. Right. Yeah. Human Torch and Toro, Cap and Bucky, Submariner. I mean, this is a who's who of Golden Age Marvel. And I can see why people might want to vote for just the first issue, because it's really the Golden Age, and this is a more standalone story as opposed to the issues two, three, and four, which feel a lot more serialized. If they only published one issue, issue one could feel like a complete story. Oh, yeah. It, issue one by itself is enough to earn a place at the ranking. But issue one is not even the best part of Marvel's. No, no, because a lot of that is just, oh, neat, we get some of the reaction. As we get to two, three, and four, particularly with the introduction of the X-Men, mm -hmm. we start actually tackling issues as well as romping down memory lane and showing this new perspective. So Phil Sheldon is now working for a magazine that can, or a newspaper that competes with the Daily Bugle. Yeah, the uh, the Globe which is the paper that Peter Parker worked for very briefly. It was the one he was always threatening to sell his photos to. But um, Bushkin, I think, Barney Bushkin, I think is his name, is the editor, editor over there. Yep. And yeah, there's the second issue is really just a bunch of, oh my gosh, wow, aren't these guys amazing as the Avengers go around being superheroes and doing stuff. But you start to get a little bit of tarnishing with that when you have the idea of the X-Men. These dirty mutants who are not trusted for being real humans. And it's worth pointing out that, yeah, the, the first issue took place in World War II, but issues two, three, and four take place in the era in which they were published. Yeah, they, they all do. So. Issue two is early 60s. Issue four is late 60s, early 70s. And so it's worth pointing out that the issue does not deal with real world racism and civil rights. But it does use the X-Men to bring out a lot of the same emotions and a lot of those same types of imagery that would have been a re very real in 1963. Yeah, and the way it's done, the first time we see the X-Men, it's when they've been chased into an alley. And the only source of light in this dark alley is Cyclops' visor. Mm. And Alex Ross painting, seeing the X-Men bathed in this red glow. I mean, the light doesn't quite work because there's also illumination of characters standing behind Cyclops, but you get the feeling that they are scary and you understand why the mob is panicking when they see these guys. So, but just, yeah, the art on that panel itself, I just, I love that. This is Alex Ross art. Yeah, it's a very eerie image, but it is, it is fantastic. It's one of the images from this book that stays with me. The, um, the giant man, uh, my daughter called it a crotch shot, but looking up at giant man stepping over to, uh, buildings is another image that stayed with me. The X-Men in red image just stays with you. You know, it's been 20 years since I've read this and I remember those, those bits. His two girls, Phil Sheldon has two daughters by issue two and they, he thinks that they have secreted a little puppy or a stray dog or something into a closet because they're sneaking food from the table and he thinks it's adorable. I think that story might be handled a little bit differently nowadays. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But it turns out they're actually secreting food for a young girl who has a physically obvious mutation. And so she fled from her parents and is hiding in the Sheldon basement. And the entire suburb town is on a riot manhunt, you know, burning torches hunt for this little girl. Yeah. Although we don't find out about that. Quite at first. A lot of this is dealing with, you know, the announcement of Rhea and Sue's marriage. And this is early enough in Alex Ross's career that when he's using humans for the models for his characters, some of those models come through. Right. It's very common for artists to use photo reference to get accurate poses and, and whatnot. But when Alex Ross does this today, you will not be able to say, here's the character that he was using as the model. I think in here, a couple of places we can. His Reed Richards bears a striking resemblance to Russell Johnson, who played the professor on Gilligan's Island. Okay. And I, I'd see a little bit of uh, Timothy Dalton in his Tony Stark as well. Yeah, yeah, probably. 
probably a little bit there. I don't mind that so much, and he is going for photorealism, so whenever he's doing an art, art, an artist's rendering, he is trying to make it look like a real person. So the fact that it come out looking even more like a model than your average comic artist doesn't bother me so much. Yeah, and it's just, it's something that artists go through with growing pains. And even here, where it's the most pronounced it is for Alex Ross, and I would say his entire career, it's still not terribly pronounced, and it is, you know, not nearly at the levels that we are going to see for some other artists later. You know, we don't need to necessarily mention when Angelina Jolie showed up in a Brian Michael Bendis comic a few years back. <laughs> okay, I'll believe you on that one. So Sheldon's making his name as as a photographer for these guys. He's trying to show up at events. He's tr- actually in the second issue. He's trying to get a book idea sold of just showcasing them. Th- what he calls them, the Marvels. You know, the heroes. And um, it's something that he actually starts to wrestle with because the idea of whether or not the heroes are a good thing gets called into question pretty heavily by the end of this issue, whenever his entire suburb reacts so harshly to the girl. You know, you have Reed and Sue's wedding, and all of the Avengers are there, and I don't think the X-Men are there, looking in the crowd right now, but lots of of celebrities Mm -hmm. in the Marvel Universe are there, and it's this big happy day, and there's a celebration afterward, and there's an all-winners squad headline in the background of the Daily Bugle building, and and that happiness and, and elation is dampened because the bar is playing a video of the Trask-Xavier debate, and so that kind of puts yeah. a dampen on things, and the Sentinels attack, and then he has to go back home, and there's all the mutant reaction and hysteria there, and, and so you have this nice mixture of amazingness and terribleness that comes with the idea of superheroes. Oh, yeah. And that continues into the third issue, where he's still trying to get his book published in some form. But we've got, you know, representation of the storyline when Senator Byrd was calling out Iron Man and calling him a threat. We've got Frederick Foswell floating around in some of these pages, as well as Betty Brandt, Ben Urich. We've got Avengers Day, as it's being declared, in the case of national security right before Atuma attacks, which is also represented. We see glimpses of Spider-Man. We see Kazar and Daredevil's murder accusations showing up in the headlines. And all of this comes to a head when the sky turns to flame. And there, there's, there's a sort of a, an, a, a theme of the apocalypse and just, you know, how, how bad can things get and how far can they go? Uh, whenever a tomb attacks and all the water levels start to rise, there's a man standing around with a Judgment Day placard strapped over his chest. And, you know, holding the comic, having seen the Silver Surfer on the cover, just helps to reinforce the fact that we're building towards something bad. Something huge and and, and terrible is going to happen. And, the, and then after the water, you have the fire in the sky, and then the rocks in the sky, and then the Silver Surfer flies through the air, being chased by the Human Torch. And Galactus shows up. Oh, yeah. And Alex Ross has actually painted lens flare into this rendition of Galactus that he has. In the full page splash that shows us Galactus for the first time, we see the Fantastic Four attack, and they're accurately showing Reed with the stubble, as he had in the original issues. And, you know, the Fantastic Four are publicly defeated. So we just see the Watcher and Galactus standing over the city while Galactus starts to build his machine. And people there are just saying it's all over as Galactus starts to feed, and then the FF come back. And, you know, we see that the Punisher come out, which is that Fantastic Four robot attacking them. We see the Silver Surfer come in, and he attacks. And this is an accurate depiction of what the public sees, so we don't see why the Silver Surfer showed up, or why he comes back and attacks Galactus. We just know that he does. The, um, the, the weird thing about this story is that I read this issue before I ever read Fantastic Four 48 through 50. So this is my first version of this story to have encountered as a young reader. Because this is one comic that I read, you know, as it was coming out. I read this new, and I didn't read a lot of those backstories read until later. So, but it's it's a beautiful depiction of the story and just how huge an impact that would have had on the New York populace. This giant, gigantic alien is building a machine which is about to feed on the planet, and your heroes just lost. And eventually they win. Oh, eventually. So 
I mean, the public sees Reed Richards with the ultimate nullifier in hand, turning Galactus around. They have no idea it's called the ultimate nullifier, why Galactus is so afraid of it. But they learn that that seems to be the device that turns the tide. As we keep going, we get the Daily Bugle where the publisher calls Galactus a hoax. And it's actually, I think, the image on that page of Reed Richards that makes him look most like Russell Johnson. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, we get a little bit of Peter Parker selling Spider-Man photos. And Phil Sheldon is getting frustrated because people keep blaming the heroes for this and badmouth them. He's like, okay, how many times do they have to save the world before you accept them and thank them for what they do? Right, because the, the Galactus was this huge thing. It was a huge emotional crisis for everyone. And then as soon as it's over, they can pretend that they weren't really in trouble. And I like the depiction of Peter Parker in this because, you know, anyone who's read enough Spider-Man knows that Peter Parker can be a bit of a tool sometimes, especially to people he doesn't know very well. And so that's the only side of the guy that Sheldon ever meets in this entire series. Even through to the end, he does not like Peter Parker that much. So Peter Parker shows up for the first time in here and he's, you know, trying to get some photos sold to, to Jameson that'll make Spider-Man look terrible. And Sheldon's like, why, why are you tearing down Spider-Man? If I were Spider-Man, I'd beat the stuffing out of that little weasel. Yeah, it is a nice touch. And it also helps explain sort of how he maintains a secret identity to a degree, just because Peter Parker doesn't seem to be that much of a supporter of Spider-Man when you see it from the outside, which didn't really gel for me until I read this series. I read later than you did, apparently. I read it in reprints, but we can get to that. Well, this issue ends with um, he's just leaving. He's leaving a dinner. He's heading out to do uh, some sort of X-Men fight. He's going to get some some photos taken. And as he's heading out to the cab, he hears the crowd just muttering, Did you hear? Mutants all the time with those. Have to bother us anyway. Can't they just keep to, all oh, to put those X-Men in jail as a lesson to... And he turns around to the crowd and shouts, You people, what do you need? The world to actually end? Are you so busy digging for garbage you can't even admit to yourselves that you're grateful? Look up, why don't you? Look up for once in your lives. And you end with a panel of the building that had had the Galactus machinery built on it. It's just a shot of that building mm-hmm. standing there, normal in the sky. And it's like they've forgotten that they yeah. almost died and the heroes saved them. And that's the end of book three. It is. And book four kicks off. Now Phil's book, Marvels, about the heroes, has been published. He's at a signing. We go from there to the Kree Skrull War, at least as much as the general public knew about it. And, you know, we see the Black Widow on trial, as was depicted in, in her stories and in the Avengers. We get J. Jonah Jameson railing against them. We get Fantastic Four getting ousted by their landlord. It's just one thing after another. There's, you know, people calling Spider-Man creepy as he crawls up the building. We see Phil Sheldon go meet Luke Cage hero for hire for the first time. And he doesn't understand why Luke Cage doesn't really want his picture shown. He doesn't mind the text piece. He doesn't want his picture. Those of us who've read the original Luke Cage Power Man stories know that he was, he actually became Power Man when he volunteered for an experiment that would shorten his prison sentence when he was in jail for a crime he didn't commit. His birth name is actually Carl Lucas. So I get why he doesn't want his face shown in public, but then from here, we see the death of Captain Stacy. And how Spider-Man is still very actively being blamed for that death by the Bugle, because it wasn't clear to the public what happened. They were fighting up on a rooftop, which, you know, in Amazing Spider-Man, was it 89 or 9? Yeah, in issue 90, when they're doing that fight, of course, we're up there on the rooftop with them, watching everything happen. But to anyone present at the event, they're down below. They can only barely see glimpses of what's going on. And it's easy to blame Spider-Man for the death of Captain Stacy, especially when the bugle is telling you to. Mm-hmm. And when he seems to just, you know, almost take off with the body because the guy was still alive and he runs away with mm-hmm. him and eventually dies because he's, uh, Spider-Man's a great hero. He's not a great EMT. <laughs> also not a very great PR rep for himself. No. But this idea of exonerating Spider-Man for that murder, exonerating him for that death, becomes a crusade for Phil Sheldon. Because he thinks that through that, through taking the creepiest of the non-X-Men heroes, it's worth pointing out the non-X-Men heroes because, you know, the X-Men still are not respected. Taking the creepiest of the roster and making him look good in the public eye would be like a centerpiece of redeeming the Marvels as a group 
in the public eye and maybe getting to be everybody to be stop being so darn cynical. Yeah. And we see moves in that direction. We see the first teaming up of Daredevil and Black Widow, who would ultimately share a title for several years when Black Widow would join Daredevil's cast. We get into, you know, his interview with Dr. Octopus at Rikers Island, and we see that, yeah, Dr. Octopus is to blame. The police have flat out stated, no, Spider-Man did not cause the damage to that rooftop. It was very clearly knocked down by Dr. Octopus's arms. They just want to talk to him as a witness. But, of course, Doc Ock is not going to clear Spider-Man's name because there's no advantage to him. It's to his advantage that Spider-Man is still the one that the public is blaming for the death of George Stacy. And this starts to turn around when Phil Sheldon interviews Gwen and meets Gwen Stacy. And the Gwen Stacy bits are so endearing because obviously we know what her story is and when we're entering very late in her comics run, but Sheldon's immediately taken with the girl in, in that way that, you know, any woman who has basically everything going for her, she's, she's appealing to talk to, she's beautiful to look at. She's, you know, she draws on the mind and the heart for just, just from a brief acquaintance. And he's talking to her about the death of her father. And she does not even believe Spider-Man did it. She was mad at him at first, but she's, she's no longer mad at him. And she's not even convinced that he was responsible. And so he feels vindicated that sure he has, there, there's a way to make this work. There's a way to make this happen. And there's a moment where he's walking with her and a t- uh, Submariner attacks again. He has all these giant robotics uh, and vehicles that are modeled after sea creatures. And they're moving into New York City. And everyone's scared, but Gwen Stacy. And one could argue against this as this sort of being the, the beatification of Gwen Stacy that has sort of happened over time. But I'm not going to go down that road because it's a really neat moment in the story where she looks at all of submariner's stuff and is taken by its beauty and phil sheldon realizes this attitude is what he's trying to get everyone to see gwen stacy has it oh yeah and it's right there and when he comes to see her again this is the turning point not just for phil sheldon's personal story but we'll talk about it later this is a turning point for marvel comics and the comics industry they've chosen to end the story with the death of gwen stacy which Phil Sheldon is a witness to. Right. So he sees the Green Goblin kidnap her. He hires a taxi to follow the Green Goblin to the bridge. And we'll be vague about which bridge it is, because, <laughs> you know, the name one and draw another in the comic. And he sees the fight between Green Goblin and Spider-Man. He sees Spider-Man try to save her. Here's the snap, and there's just tiny little lowercase lettering in his speech balloon, just, no. You know, he's looked down, he has closed his eyes, he cannot watch, and she's dead. As he puts it, her death didn't even make the front page. Spider-Man did, of course, though only the bugle accused him of murder. The others all trotted out George Stacy, though. And Stacy's daughter gets buried in paragraph 10. Paragraph 10, he's getting so mad. Because he failed her, they all failed her. And you go into this period of, um, of grief for Sheldon. Because everything he was trying to do, everything he was trying to accomplish was embodied in Gwen Stacy. And he trusted the heroes to save her. And the heroes didn't save her. And Spider-Man, you know, didn't let Gwen Stacy die, but Spider-Man didn't stop Gwen Stacy from dying. And he goes in this period where basically all of that mission to exonerate the Marvels and to make everything work and all that is, is now a futile, wasted effort. And he sort of retreats from his work to the point where he no longer feels the need. And there, there are two things going on here. There's one, life goes on after death. You know, when you lose somebody, life keeps going on, and he's experiencing that. But I kind of thought it was an interesting metaphor for the comics storytelling in general, that you have a huge major event like the night Gwen Stacy died, but the next month comics Mm -hmm. keep going on, and they keep going on, and they keep going on, and you don't really stop. Mm -hmm. You don't stop to remember, you know, the impact and the pathos, and so if you're a person in that story... It's just going to keep on going, and you can't stop it. Yeah, it is. this has quite the impact. It does end on a little bit of an upbeat note. Uh, one of the newspaper headlines we saw before, it wasn't really emphasized, but one of the newspapers mentioned that there was a fire, and it appears that Yellow Jacket and Wasp had died. 
this ends with the reveal that they are alive. And that's kind of the glimmer of hope that helps Phil Sheldon bounce back a little bit out of his funk. And so, yeah, he's leaving his house. He's telling his assistant to take a picture of him and his family because that's what he's going to pay attention to now. And he wants to get a nice, normal, ordinary boy in the picture. So he picks the, the newspaper boy. Says, hey, come on over here. Come get in the picture. It's kind of, it's actually kind of a weird thing to do, but you know, it's the 60s. You got away with that better then. And the irony is that he's in this nice, normal family picture with this nice, normal boy. Who's Danny Ketch? Yep. The 1990s ghost writer. Right. Future ghost writer is the little boy. So even whenever he's going for normalcy in the Marvel universe, he is actually pulling out a future Marvel for the photo. Yeah. All right. So that's the plot synopsis. If we want to talk about the continuity significance, this doesn't really add much to continuity aside from Phil Sheldon's story, and I don't recall seeing Phil Sheldon anywhere but the pages of Marvel's or Marvel's Eye of the Camera. So it's not a huge impact on continuity, it's more the impact this has of being an incredibly well-done comic that forces you to look at that existing continuity in a different way. Yeah, it's it, it doesn't have an impact on continuity, but it does assemble continuity in a really great package that honestly had just never been done before. And although things like this have been done occasionally since, honestly, they've never been on the same level. Yeah. If you want to give someone a, you know, a quick rundown of what's going on in the first few years of the Marvel Silver Age, I would rather have the Marvels than Marvel Saga. It's not as detailed as Marvel Saga, but it does hit all the key points and it's just so engaging and so well executed. If you've got any interest in seeing Marvel Silver Age stories, or if you've tried reading the Silver Age stories and just find because of how the industry has grown that the Silver Age stories are tough to get through, this is a good nutshell summary of what happens between Marvel Comics Presents number one and Amazing Spider-Man 122. Yeah, there's no presents on that, by the way. Oh, sorry. Marvel Comics. Yeah, it's the second time you've said it. That's what I say. Yeah, it's 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 interesting in that light because when I read it for this recording, I have now read all of those Avengers issues. I have read all of those Spider-Man issues. I have not read all of the Daredevil or Fantastic Four issues. I've read a lot of the Fantastic Four, but not all of them. And so when I read this in the 90s, I felt like I was very much on the outside getting glimpses, but didn't really follow what was going on beyond Phil Sheldon's narrative. For me, the, the, the continuity assemblage joy actually is a lot more if you have read the issues. You can get a feel for the Marvel Universe at the time, but you're not really going to get a, get a good an understanding or a good idea of the events because they're really just yeah. glimpses. They're really just snapshots and you move on. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of detail here, but it, it does give you the nutshell of what was going on, but it is just from the perspective of the layperson who doesn't necessarily know all the details. And I like how much uh, weight it gives to the Galactus story, because that is that was yeah. definitely an event in the universe. If you were living in the universe that day, that was a big deal. And it's easy to forget yeah. that whenever it's just, you know, it's just the next Fantastic Four story. So just as in the real world, people who were born in a certain era will tell you where they were the day Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, or where they were the day JFK was assassinated. If you were in the Marvel Universe at the time, you would remember where you were when you heard about Galactus. Just like, I mean, even as a Canadian, but born in the 70s, I can tell you what I was doing when I first heard about the 9-11 attacks. There are some things that just get seared into your memory because they are big. And yeah, that coming of Galactus would be one of those events in the Marvel Universe. One of the interesting quirks about Marvel storytelling, this book just completely sidesteps it. And it's a good thing, because if they're going to try to address it in the narrative, it would probably be problematic. And that is the passage of time and how it affects people. Because everyone in this story gets older, except the Marvels. Even Jameson grows older, because he's kind of a young whippersnapper and in the first issue during World War II era, and he becomes his crusty older self by the end of the book. But of course, Captain America and the Avengers are the same age in issue two as they are 10 years later in issue four. None of them seem to have gotten any older. Phil Sheldon, however, is retiring <laughs> from his job in issue four. So it's, um, 
It's just one of those things that they could have tried to address it, but by never even com- coming anywhere close to mentioning it, it's kind of kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And that was a, a conscious choice by Kurt Busiek to keep things in the context because he there was some debate about using the sliding Marvel timeline to readjust it, but he he wouldn't do that. First of all, because he wanted Phil Sheldon to be there for the Golden Age, right? Had they used Marvel's sliding timeline of this stuff happened 10 or 12 years ago, your entry-level character would not have been a witness to what was going on during World War II. Right. So they he chose to say, no, the, between that and the fact that a lot of these were stories of their time and had, you know, the first few issues of Spider-Man been written in the 70s or the 80s rather than the 60s, they would have been different stories. So he wanted to keep them in the context that way. And I'm glad they did. So it, it does beg some questions about the different aging rates, but, you know, I, I can accept them. There is a uh, there is a sequel to this series that's worth mentioning called Marvel's Eye of the Camera, and it picks up, you know, it focuses on the 70s of Marvel. There's a lot of emphasis on the the idea of monsters and their horror elements that were popular in the 70s. Those ideas get explored, and the little mutant girl from the second issue comes back, and she's involved in the storyline. Um, but it's not Alex Ross. I honestly don't remember off the top of my head if it's Kurt Busiek or not. But um, it's not a bad read, but it's not the same either by any stretch. Alex Ross's artwork really does help to make this book the experience that it is. And without that, there's there's a loss of a certain crucial something. There is. It it is Eyes of the Cam- or Eye of the Camera was still written by Kurt Busiek. Uh, the art was by Jay Anacleto. He did pencils and inks with Brian Haberlin coloring at least the first issue of the six. Okay. And like I said, it's not bad artwork. It's just not the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's also a different era. I mean, it does come into the 80s a bit. We've got Dazzler and Mohawk Storm and Longshot on the cover of issue five. So it does move beyond the 50s and into the 70s and 80s. But yeah, it's one of those sequels that I, I think it would be more fondly remembered if not for the series it was actually following, right? The, the first Marvels doesn't have a huge impact on continuity. There are messages there, which we can get into, but that's not why I made the list. It's just... It was an event comic. It, it, it was the comic of 1994. I mean, this, the, 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 the impact this had on the industry was huge. Yeah. See, for me, this was originally published just as I was getting out of collecting comics. Following Infinity Gauntlet, the only thing I picked up during my original collecting run was Infinity War, and then I stepped away until the movies came out. And when I was getting back into comics and asking people online, particularly the Rec Arts Marvel Comics Universe, a Rec Arts Comics Marvel Universe news group saying, you know, hey, I'm getting back in, what should I read? Marvels was consistently showing up as a list of just here's something great that you should track down. And I was in a comic shop in Jasper, Alberta, and they had had some problem with floodings and there was some water damage product. So I picked this up in trade paperback form at 50% off. Wow. And yeah, there's no visible damage on my copy whatsoever. They just needed to recover costs quickly to cover the remodeling. So the entire trade paperback stock was half price just to get them moving. So I got this and the first trade of JMS's Amazing Spider-Man run at 50% off. And this reading it, I totally understand why it's so well heralded. But I was getting out of collecting comics when this hit. My initial collecting trend ended with Maximum Carnage. And there were a few things that I, I, I stuck, you know, held on to for a little bit longer. But really, um, once I stopped getting the, you know, monthly Spider Man titles, everything else was, everything else's days were numbered. But this hit in 1994, the first issue when we we're still, you know, kind of looking at things and looking at comic book shelves. And we picked it up and it was, oh my gosh, amazing. So we made sure to get the next issues and we never got the zero issue, which came out months later. And I don't remember how that was released. I don't know if it was a wizard zero special or just a special edition that was released, but um, we did eventually get the hardcover that had the, at least the story pages from the zero issue in it. And the zero issue is really what Alex Ross did as an idea for an early version of what became Marvel's. So there's no Phil Sheldon, but it is a much more extensive look at Jim Hammond, the Human Torch, and his origin story from his point of view. 
and it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But yeah, whenever we got this, this was, this blew us away. And it was my first exposure to things like the Galactus story, to the night Gwen Stacy died, to a lot of the early Marvel comics that I've now read, some of them several times. This was my eye-opening gateway to the Silver Age of Marvel. It was it was quite a read. Yeah, for me, I read it in conjunction with a lot of those. I don't remember the exact sequence, but by the time I picked this up, I'd already started collecting the essential volumes. Yeah, it, I mean, in terms of the impact, as we said, it didn't have a big impact on continuity, but it had a huge impact in terms of you know the quality of art that people could put out. I don't recall fully painted comics that predate this. There's maybe some independent stuff in Bill Sienkiewicz, but this is the first time I'm aware of either of the big two doing fully painted comics. Right. And it's still rarely a thing. I mean, you think about painting a comic. And these are not little comics. These are big comics. But, uh, they're all double or triple sized. I forget exactly how many story pages there are in each. I think there's 50 story pages in each. Going by Marvel Digital Unlimited page counts. Each of them is a 45-page file, so that's the cover plus 44 interior pages. Okay, monthly. So this was yeah. being worked on for a while before the first issue ever hit shelves. Oh, yeah. Clearly, this would have been, because it's separate from continuity, they could publish it on whatever schedule they can manage. So I strongly suspect that it was you know, just given to, the scripts were given to Alex Ross after he and Kurt Busiek worked it out. And Ross painted it in the time it took to paint it, and it was just published when ready, because there was no need to sort of line it up with anything else being published at the time and make sure you hit a particular schedule, which was tremendously beneficial to the quality of the product. They could take their time and just make it what it needed to be. And it ended up being a possibly the very last thing I bought off shelves whenever I was collecting as, as a young person. And um, basically, Marvel's was was the end of my collecting until until the mid to late 2000s but you know what a note to go out on <laughs> oh yeah so i think from here we can move into the part of the podcast that i've so blatantly stolen from mission log a roddenberry star trek podcast which everyone should be listening to they're doing great work and by the time you hear this they should be well into season four of star trek the next generation but we should look to see if there's got any messages and morals and meanings that come out of it and i would say the second issue and the third issue those two in particular have messages. I would say issues one and four raise questions, but I don't know if I'd call it a message because he doesn't, they don't really come out with a firm answer. It's just, here's something you should think about. Yeah, I think the, the thing we're thinking about there is how we treat our heroes and how we treat celebrity and our just our general tendency toward jaded cynicism. That's, that's a bit of a problem. Um, but it's not, it's yeah. not really something that he gives an answer for or says this is the way things should be. It's just he kind of hates it. But issues two and three, you're right. The events of issue two in particular, um, with the hatred and the racism and the prejudice against the different and the unknown is, and how misguided that is because they're all scared of the word muty. And what they're really attacking is a helpless little girl who's hungry. And, and I'll yeah. let you talk about what you were thinking of with issue three. Yeah. Issue three is the one where we really get into sort of turning celebrities into martyrs and, you know, the, the lack of, of, uh, it's not gratuity, but you know how people are generally not grateful enough of those who are out there supporting gratitude. Them. Yeah. Gratitude. That's the lack of gratitude out there. I mean, I just look at the way, you know, police have shown up in the media for the past couple of years. When you get the rare minority of police officers who abuse their power or demonstrate racism, it makes every newspaper in the country and colors the way people look at the police. Whereas if you take a step back and look at all the other articles of what's going on, you know, when they talk about, you know, there's a fire in this place, they don't necessarily say an X number of firefighters were on scene dealing with it. And this many police were doing crowd control. Like, you know, I'm not saying that all emergency responders are perfect, but they deserve more credit than they get. And there's a lot of people who have basically turned on the police I've interacted with people online who don't like any police officer, period, regardless of where they are. And they point to that half a dozen or so isolated examples, some of which are not even truly what they are. I remember there was one case, I don't remember specifically which town it happened in, but there were six witnesses saying that the police officer was just racially motivated and 
shot someone in cold blood, whereas the officer said, no, it was self-defense, he was charging, he was doing this. And to give the Washington Post credit, when they covered it, they dug up the autopsy report with the photos and said, yeah, there were six witnesses against the officer, but the autopsy report supports every single thing that the officer said. You know, while the witnesses are saying, yeah, he shot him in the back in cold blood, and the public were saying, well, why did he get off and, you know, he was found innocent in the trial when there's all these witnesses against him? Well, it's because the victim didn't have bullet holes in his back. He had them in the arm where the officer said, you know, he was wrestling for the gun. He had him in the top of the head from when the officer said he was charging him. And I think a lot of that comes out in issue three where people are ready to vilify these heroes. And that's when Phil Sheldon loses his temper. He's like, what, do you need the world to actually end before you appreciate everything that they have done for you? So, yeah, I just found a lot of that comes out in that issue with Phil Sheldon's outburst. Mm-hmm. But yeah, one in four, it's more of a, it's more of an eye opener with, you know, how are you viewing the celebrities and the heroes with, you know, as I said, it raises questions. I don't know if I'd call them meanings or messages because it doesn't draw conclusions. Right. It's just giving us the things to think about. So did you notice anything else in there? Or? Uh, no, that's basically it. I mean, this is, th- this, this is a story full of pathos and full of humanity full of the the human experience and what that human experience would be like in a world of marvels and on on that level you know the idea of morals and messages feels very heavy but exactly what those are is kind of harder to to point out because you certainly feel a lot through the course of reading this if you're if you're letting yourself be honest with material everything from uh, shock and horror at the Human Torch to a uh, completely different kind of shock and horror at the death of Gwen Stacy mm-hmm. and all of the wonder and, and amazement in between. There's just, there's a lot going on in this, but not really anything that I can oh. turn into and say it, this is what it means or this is what it's trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. There's not, yeah, there's not a lot, as, as we said, that we could point to that says this is the message. So I think from here, we're down to a conversation I kind of half started and abandoned earlier on why we think it landed at this point in the countdown because we are in the top 10 here like the this isn't just top 75 marvel stories of all time this is number eight so why is it that it didn't just make the countdown but it landed this high and looking at the three elements we look at entertainment value importance to continuity and the messages and meanings entertainment value is it's just overflowing Mm -hmm. it's one of the best made comic series period for the importance and continuity there's not so much on the in-story continuity so much as there is a wake-up call to the industry saying hey comics like this can be done right huge on the industry not so huge on the in-universe aspect of things but definitely huge to comics readers at the time yeah looking at the marvel comics unless you're talking about a character in marvel or marvel's eye of the camera i don't think you're going to find someone who even knows who phil sheldon is right or discusses him in any context or maggie the mutant girl yeah and then beyond that, when we get into the messages and the morals and the meanings, it, well, there definitely is some of that, especially the racial intolerance of the second issue with the way people are treating mutants and the way we see Phil Sheldon starting to go down that road until he meets the little girl that, hit, that has befriended his little girls. And that kind of puts things in a different perspective for him. So I would think it's primarily the entertainment followed by some of those messages because the deeper meanings are there if you want to, to look for them, that caused it to land where it is in the tournament. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I would. It's, it's, it's definitely deserving of its place. One of the top 10 things that Marvel has done of all time, top 10 greatest stories. This is a great story. It's not just good, but it's profound and it's big. It's important. And not just as a, like a, you know, Captain America comics, number one important, but as, as a Marvel universe milestone, of the history of the, of, of the company and, and the universe, this is important. Yeah. Definitely one of the greatest. Yes, it is. All right. So from there, unless you had any closing thoughts, why don't you tell people where they could find your stuff? Well, you can find me um, painting monthly comics of 45 pages a piece. Oh, no, just kidding. I do a few podcasts. I am currently putting out episodes with my daughter, of the Avengers Inspirations podcast at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, where you will hear us discuss some of the events that are depicted here. Um, not really, though, because there are a lot of Marvel comics we're talking about, and only a, only a very small percentage get shown in Marvels. But we are talking about Silver Age Marvel, so there's that. 
Uh, you can also find me and Bob Fisher, Superman fan extraordinaire, over at the Giant Superman podcast, where we are talking about the Giant Superman annuals that DC put out in the 1960s. And those are my two things. All right. So for those of you who are reading along at home, next week we are looking at the Infinity Gauntlet. That's the full six-issue miniseries, but none of the crossovers. It was reprinted in trade paperback and hardcover form, as well as being available through Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited. For those half of you who survive in the universe to listen to that podcast. Oh, yeah. So from there, feel free to rate this and any other shows you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use. It really does help the shows get noticed. You can also join our Facebook discussion forum to talk about these stories as we discuss them and share links to the episodes with friends who you think may enjoy them. And finally, thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So, um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... Fa- <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you!